As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Yeah, Wei Li, the Global Chief Investment Strategist at BlackRock, joins us now. Wei Li, I want to go straight to a quote of yours on a recession in Europe. You've been on top of that story for a while. You've pushed the same story recently, and you've asked the question, why aren't equities pricing it? And you're not alone, Wei Li. Why do you think that's the case? Why do I think uh, equities are pricing in not a recession? I think there is a lot of hope uh, in markets uh, that uh, the innovation of corporates uh, would eventually continue to come through and, and margin would stay elevated. But uh, <coughs> in our view, actually, that is unrealistic to uh, to expect that in this environment where cost of production is going higher, uh, labor uh, shortage is prevalent, not just in Europe, in the US as well, where I am right now. It feels like I'm manning your studio for you uh, today. Um, uh, so in, in that kind of environment, we expect margin to uh, actually come under pressure. And eventually, the current market consensus for uh, earnings growth, not just in Europe, but also in the US, uh, will have to mm. come down to meet uh, the, the, the reality that we are heading into a recession in Europe this year and uh, one in the U.S. Uh, like uh, right. likely next year as well. Whaley, I find your note to be the grimmest note on Europe I have read. I will not mince words about it. It's very, very difficult. Does Madame Lagarde have the nominal GDP firepower, the economic animal spirit to affect the rate path you suggest? Can, can, do they have the interior structure to do higher interest rates? I want to uh, pick up on something that Lisa uh, talked about, which is this uh, idea of unreality, right? So we're in an environment shaped by supply uh, constraint, which is very, very different from the great moderation that has been shaped by uh, demand and spending. And in this environment, actually, the trade-off facing central banks 
are so much harder, the trade-off between growth and inflation. And so far, what we have heard from Madame Lagarde is um, perhaps some lip service to this trade-off, but not really acknowledging how costly it would be to uh, actually uh, bring down inflation through hiking rates and what that means for growth and what that means for uh, the labor market. So we believe that until uh, central bankers uh, acknowledge uh, that trade-off and choose to live with inflation, uh, we are going to be in this uh, environment for an extended period of time where the politics uh, of inflation will be prevalent uh, instead of the economics of inflation, will, uh, which will become clearer as we enter uh, next year. But right now, all on fighting uh, inflation, which based on what we saw yesterday, uh, the core part of inflation is proving to be sticky and persistent. Well, a lot of people would agree with you about Europe, and you're hearing a lot of notes or reading them that are saying underweight Europe. It's not so clear in the U.S. It's not consistent in terms of the messaging. How far away from realistic pricing do you think we are in equities even after what we saw yesterday? Um, right now, obviously, markets are moving uh, very, very quickly. Yesterday, very dramatic sell-off, but today bouncing back a little bit. Uh, we believe that actually more uh, needs to be given back to properly reflect the fact that uh, uh, we should uh, be looking at a earnings recession. So right now, if you look at year-to-date market pricing, uh, we think that actually the rate path is uh, to some extent, uh, uh, fully uh, uh, reflected in equity pricing, but the fact that uh, earnings is going to store uh, uh, greatly is is not yet reflected. In comparison, however, credit is uh, pricing in a version of uh, growth stalling, which is why in a whole portfolio uh, context, we prefer uh, to own credit over uh, over equity. And just uh, building on this, this idea of uh, unreality. Um, now, Lisa, you asked about the U.S. Uh, we also believe that the Fed has yet to acknowledge the very difficult trade-off between growth and inflation. Um, we'll pay attention to the, the economic forecast next um, next week. But uh, in our assessment, uh, actually, in order to bring inflation back down uh, to 2% over two years, uh, we could be looking at 3 million additional people uh, out of a job and uh, also deep Wow. recession, 2% uh, contraction, which is currently not being talked about. This is the sort of tough trade-off that we're looking at in this environment shaped by supply constraint, and we think that markets uh, will wake up to that uh, in time. Wally of BlackRock, way fantastic, as always. Right now, and this is the most interesting time to speak to the gentleman from Rice University with mechanical engineering as a background. He went on to engineer all sorts of efforts in private equity and venture capital. He's the governor, the Republican from Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, and we're thrilled the governor could join us this morning. Governor, I cannot think of a time to speak to you with someone who's pro-business, pro-innovation, dealing with a Republican Party that wants to bob, bomb Rob Portman and the rest back to an anti-business time. How anti-business, anti-Youngkin is your Republican Party? Well, I don't think the Republican Party is anti-business. And in fact, uh, Republican governors all over the country have been leading the recovery coming out of the pandemic. And that's exactly what we've been doing in Virginia. We've got taxes down. We're open for business. We're seeing great announcements from companies. We have a lot of open jobs, and that's one of our biggest challenges is getting people back to work 
I am really concerned about the inflationary policies that we see coming out of the Biden administration. And Tom, we see the ramifications of that yesterday, which is and anybody who thought that this was going to be short lived uh, has been uh, shaken because what we're seeing is the persistent result of bad policies, inflationary policies with right. grocery prices up, fuel prices up and Virginians and Americans feeling it in their wallet and they're having to make compromises right. as a result. We have iconic American companies moving, for instance, from Chicago to greater Washington, D.C., translated Virginia. We've got entrepreneurial companies such as your announcement today on an innovative company. And on a wage basis, they're competing with Amazon, who's lifting compensation for drivers in hundreds of thousands of their employees. Is there a wage spiral in Virginia? Well, there is a there is a real wage inflation challenge um, there. These these wages are growing, but they're not growing as fast as inflation and, and, and the cost of living. Uh, I am really excited about these new companies that are coming like Plenty Unlimited that we're announcing today that is going to build the largest indoor growing facility in the world. And we're going to see them right here in Virginia. They're going to compete for talent. This is why we have to get people back into the labor force. We've seen labor participation drop substantially in Virginia. We were up near 67% prior to the pandemic. And unfortunately, we dropped and we're in the 63 and a half percentage-ish now. We've got to get people back to work. These great jobs, these next generation kinds of opportunities will pull people back into the workforce, but we've got to stop all of the underpinnings that have encouraged them to stay home and out of the workforce and get them back to work. Governor, this indoor vertical farming uh, company and the indoor vertical farm that you're espousing really speaks to an agenda more commonly associated with the Democrats in terms of trying to uh, make things greener, make things more uh, modern with respect to the carbon footprint. Do you find yourself bumping up against that stereotype when trying to have a more modern approach that brings in more young workers? Well, not really. I mean, agriculture is Virginia's largest private industry and technology is one of our fastest growing sectors. And so to bring agriculture and technology together in the Commonwealth of Virginia makes perfect sense. And in fact, we have absolutely become the hub with today's announcement with Plenty, which is going to build a $300 million facility <clears throat> right outside of Richmond, 300 new jobs. And our announcement two days ago with AeroFarm we will have the first and second largest indoor growing facilities in Virginia. And yesterday we announced uh, another company, Beanstalk, expanding their facilities. So we're bringing together our agriculture roots, our technology future, and, uh, and forging the way for, for an industry of the future. Ag tech uses far less natural resources, has higher yields, and, and, a, and a great product. And I just think this is part of the future of agriculture that's yeah. happening right here in Virginia. Just real quick, Governor, I remember speaking with you when you had your private uh, private sector hat on about infrastructure and plans that you were looking for. And I'm wondering now that you're in the public sector, if you've been surprised by the partisanship that prevents certain things from happening or have you been uh, surprised in the other way? Well, I do believe that investing in infrastructure broadly is critically important to facilitate growth. I mean, we're seeing capacity issues across our infrastructure. I mean, we're still rated a D as a nation. We gotta address this. And so we're doing it in Virginia. Uh, we moved up substantially in the rankings at infrastructure. Our port is being deepened and widened. Our road infrastructure is being improved. Our connectivity and broadband 
is taking a huge step forward. And this is the kind of uh, progress that we must make. We're doing it both with government-led things, but more importantly, with public-private partnerships. And I think investing in infrastructure will continue to be one of the great challenges and the great opportunities for Virginia and the nation. Lisa, is that one step closer to asking about carrot interest? Is that what you wanted to do with the governor next? <laughs> well, we could have gone we're, to carrot interest. We're out of, we're out of time. So you, you're, you're in luck. Governor, governor, I know we had some technical <laughs> problems so to much. start the interview, so we have run out of time, sir. But next time, we'd love a longer conversation. Governor Glenn Young in there of Virginia. Governor, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Right now, and this is really an honor because I can give you a story about how economists become stars. Michelle Meyer is a MasterCard Economics Institute, but far more, one day, a girl fell out of Boston University and everybody stopped and said, wow, does she know housing? Michelle Meyer joins us now after years at Bank of America and truly expert on your next mortgage and rent payment. Michelle, let me cut to the chase. How bad is it? How bad and how persistent? will the housing inflation be? 
Well, thank you, Tom, for that that wonderful intro. Um, you know, I think the big challenge for the housing market right now is simply affordability, and that comes from two factors. One is that home prices increased at an extraordinary rate across the country over the last two years, running in double-digit rates for the major metropolitan areas. By our metrics, and we looked at um, home prices relative to income growth across all of those really specific right. uh, metro areas, about 65% of the country is considered overvalued. So you have that coupled now with this extraordinary increase of mortgage rates, and that has created a huge shock to the housing market. So as you know, home Multi sales have been falling yeah. steadily since the beginning of the year. Right, multifamily to the rescue, that's what always happens in the cycle. Can multifamily come to the rescue in Nashville or Denver, never to the rescue in New York, but is multifamily, are we getting more units? We are. We certainly are. I mean, if you look at housing starts, they're still running above what you would consider a break-even rate, particularly for multifamily. Um, and remember the lags with multifamily as well. It takes about a year from the beginning of the project to completion um, on average once the construction starts. So, um, you, you know, you had a lot of projects that were ongoing. The development was happening and now you're starting to see those completions. So you're starting to see those projects enter the market in a bigger way. So you still have supply hitting the market, particularly in the multifamily space. Um, and that should help because you can have some conversion from owning to renting, given the affordability strains in the housing market market. But look at owner's equivalent rent um, in last um, in yesterday's report in CPI. That is accelerating further. Um, so there's still rental pressures as well, which further strains affordability um, across Michelle, all housing. What can rate hikes do about that? What can rate hikes do about that rental price pressure we're seeing build? Well, I would argue that that transmission from monetary policy is quite apparent in the housing market right now and will be increasingly in the rental market as well. You know, these are interest sensitive sectors. Um, and the fact that the Fed is increasing as rapidly as they have, and you'd argue for reasons that are quite clear to contain uh, prices and inflation, um, that increase in interest rates has slowed down demand of housing. And in turn, it will put that type of downward pressure on, on home prices as well, on home price appreciation which then spills into rental inflation. But that all takes time. It is not immediate. But I would argue it's already underway, that transmission. Well, at least on the housing price side, but on the rental issue, I just want to pick up John's right to bring up the fact that rents are still climbing and faster than people had previously expected, at least based on the CPI report from yesterday. And there's an argument that the higher prices go on houses, uh, the more people are forced to rent, the less affordable it goes, especially given uh, the high mortgage rates. Where is this potential for an overshoot at the same time that the people who are least able to handle inflation are feeling all the more pain. Yeah, I mean, look, these are these are these are certainly some of the challenges here in terms of finding that ultimate equilibrium in the economy after creating, you know, some real imbalances in terms of excess stimulus. Um, and I think, you know, the adjustment is 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 happening, but it's not complete. And in the interim, yes, you've seen this, you know, some push into. <clears throat> to renting, which is increasing demand for rentals when there's still some, um, you know, lag in terms of getting all that supply into the market, but it will come. And frankly, you know, one of the ways it will come in terms of normalizing inflation and normalizing particularly rental inflation is through the demand side. 
um, in the sense of weakening the broader economy, particularly the labor market. Um, you have a bit of an income shock, and then naturally you start to see that feed through. Um, and that's what Fed Chair Powell, I think, has been saying quite clearly, which is that they are keenly focused on price stability and reducing inflation. And that does mean, you know, sacrificing some real growth. But this really leads to the question of how much pain needs to be inflicted on this economy or how much pain will be inflicted on this economy based on the rate hiking cycle being priced into the market in a way that we are not anticipating because of that lag time, because we're not seeing it yet in some of the metrics. What's your sense of how likely or unlikely a hard landing, I hate using that, but a, a recession that's somewhat significant is given the report that we got yesterday on CPI? Well, I think the report yesterday showed two things. One is that you are seeing relief on the supply side in that, you know, you have we've seen a drop in energy prices. Um, We're starting to see some easing of goods inflation that and more should come, given what you've seen from container costs coming down, supply chain issues easing. But the demand side, there's still a lot of inflation there and the services economy Mm. is Um, So for the Fed that has a lot more control over the demand side, it does give them that type of, you know, push to continue to raise interest rates to cool down the economy. And Lisa, to your point, it is taking time because the starting point was really high. You know, as we've been talking about, as I'm talking to to you all for the last few months, the consumer is healthy. There's strong balance sheets. The consumer is still out there spending and they're navigating this inflation environment. Okay, Michelle, you've been brilliant on that. And of course, you've got all the resources of MasterCard to figure that out. Jim Glassman at JP Morgan is pushing against the gloom like no one I've ever seen in the decades he's done this. Help us with the Glassman Meyer consumer. How boomy is the consumer right now? Look, from our data, we're looking at our our spending pulse data for the month of August. There was an acceleration in the year over year growth rate of consumer spending. And that's you know, even controlling for these movements and gas and oil and, and autos, et cetera. So like the underlying demand that did accelerate. So we'll see what the retail sales report shows tomorrow. But, you know, it seems like we're there setting we up retail you know, Thursday, retail Thursday. Michelle, see, there, she, we'll give Thank her you. credit for it. Michelle knows it's retail Thursday. <laughs> it's retail Thursday. It's MasterCard. Right now, joining us. On a phrase that is simple, how to invest, and the arch way to invest is to not lose money. David Rubenstein is with us, co-founder of Carlisle Group and author of the new book, How to Invest. And David, it's just a great concept, and to me what's important here is the team you have at Carlisle, which can talk about log normal distributions and tail risk and all the other mathematical blather. The foundational issue is the how to invest, how to make money over long term, is to not lose money. How do you avoid losses in investment? Well, if you're really uh, investing, you're probably not going to be able to avoid losses at some point. No great investor has been able to uh, avoid losses at some point. Even Warren Buffett has lost money on investments. So you have to be in the game and recognize if you're reasonably good at it, you'll probably make more money than you'll lose money. And what I tried to do is to interview some of the best investors in the United States and talk to them about what their secrets were, how they got where they are, and what they would recommend to other people who want to be investors. Part of this is the definition of short term. How short is short term for the different chapters of your book? Well, of course, some investors are trading daily 
Uh, but for people that do what I have typically done, which is private equity, it's a longer term investment hold, which is typically three to five years. Clearly, people like Warren Buffett are holding <coughs> almost forever. But I'd say generally investors who put money to, to work are trying to get some kind of good rate of return somewhere between a three and five year period of time, typically in the private equity or venture capital growth capital areas. David, were you surprised what any of these luminaries said in terms of their investing secrets or their mantras? Well, I don't know if I was surprised. I've known many of them over the years, and so I've, I've really spent some time with them before. But generally what they would say is that you have to take some risks. And the great investors are basically going against conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom will say to sell, and the great investors will say now's the time to buy, or vice versa. And the most common mistake that they all felt people make is that when the markets go up, people tend to get in. When markets go down, they tend to sell. And the great investors tend to do the opposite. When markets are in trouble as they are now, you could argue, now is probably a pretty good time to invest. You won't see the results of your investment for two or three years if it's successful. But generally, people are now really skilled investors, I think, are buying things now at the bottom of the market or close to the bottom of the market. How has investing wisdom changed or investing beliefs as we've seen a complete change in the technology underpinning a lot of it, with a lot of it done more quickly, democratizing in many ways who can get in, how people can trade? Well, it used to be investing was really something available only to the top uh, wealthiest people in the, in the country or in the world. Now everybody can participate and invest alongside <clears throat> some very good investors by going into their funds. One of the big changes is that the rate of return was always the most important thing. The highest rate of return you could legally get was what people wanted. Now people do worry about things like ESG. Uh, that was not a factor 10 or 20 years ago. Now, while ESG has been under some attack lately, there's no doubt that ESG factors are important for a lot of investors and for institutional investors as well. David, in the next hour, we will witness a queen of the United Kingdom with her coffin move through the door of Westminster Hall. It is an ancient, ancient edifice. It is as ancient as what you brought to America, which is a copy of the Magna Carta. Please explain your view is the one that helped the National Archives with our heritage. Please explain the reach from the time of the Magna Carta and Westminster Hall to Queen Elizabeth. Well, the Magna Carta was designed, and there are versions of it from 1215 to 1297, to give people, and generally the, the wealthier people at the time, not really the average person, though it later evolved, the uh, benefits of things like uh, trial uh, with juries, uh, no uh, taxation without representation, uh, right to habeas corpus, things like that. Interestingly, the Magna Carta became less significant in England for a while and became more significant in the United States because when our charters were drafted for the colonies, the 13 colonies, they typically had the rights of the Magna Carta or as put into those, uh, those charters. So in many ways, our Revolutionary War, which was against England, ironically, uh, was really based really? on the premise that we had... Uh, uh, the rights of the Magna Carta. Many people in this country believe that they had those rights because they were guaranteed in the colonial charters. Mm -hmm. And for some period of time, the Magna Carta became much more significant in this country, really, than it did in England. David, we, we see a United Kingdom with the changing of prime minister and clearly from their chancellor of the exchequer, a growth at any cost strategy. Is there any history where growth at any cost works? 
Well, growth in any cost will just produce inflation typically. So I think you have to be careful about any type of growth. I think the English economy or the British economy has some real challenges now, more than even the U.S. economy. Uh, I think Brexit has had some uh, impact on Britain that probably is not as favorable as people would like. I think also the global the economy is not as strong as Britain would like or the U- Europe would like. And I think the European economy is behind the U.S. right now. Inflation is probably as high as in the U.S., but the growth is much less likely to, to go forward than it is in the U.S. So I think the British economy has some real challenges now. Forecasting a recession here in the U.K. The Fed's not got around to doing that in the United States just yet. David, fantastic to catch up with you, sir, <clears throat> as always. David Rubenstein. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. 